How wide can the space of embracing that you spoke of be for people, like prisoners, for example, who may not have the present capacity for insight and who seem not ready to face trauma? Perhaps they will never be ready. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Sometimes in the midst of a talk, you miss, you miss aspects, you know, you miss parts of the picture. I do anyway. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that journey with jealousy, it was a long, you know, this is circling, circling process of moving in and out of that and, uh, learning about it very, very gradually and finding that capacity and losing it again. And so I agree with you. It's a lot about how to discover the potential to be present with these painful feelings. And most of the time, it's not breakthrough. But there is something still valuable being grown in those moments. Definitely. So that's why I like to emphasize letting go of outcome. So letting go of those sort of evaluations of what's a successful meditation or process. Because it's a, like a, a ripening, but there was a, you know, a learning in that moment. It stayed with me. Yeah, so thank you for bringing that in. Yeah. When and how in meditation and in life should we put boundaries around unhelpful things without a pushing away quality? Mm. Well, it depends what's what's possible, what's available. But uh, uh, kind of on the meditative level, meditative domain, the fact is called relinquishment. So renunciation is a kind of warm-up. <laughs> renunciation generally means renunciation of sense fields or going into the sense contact where you get a lot of proliferation. So, you know, so relinquishment is a deeper process of relinquishment of um, the, the energy that creates a, a polarity. You know, me, you, me, you, you know. Uh, that kind of so it's a fairly subtle and depth process. Um, you know, depending what area you're working in, but in your daily life you probably do have to have boundaries where you distinctly repel unskillful influences. You know, that's a fairly coarse level, so it can refine from something that's just basically, you know, sort of creating your safety zone, and and within that the What's called deep attention means you don't give attention to features, factors, qualities which give rise to unwholesome, unskillful proliferation. You don't give them attention. So that creates a kind of boundary. So it's not so much a rejecting as a withdrawing of attention. Yeah? Do you see what I mean? It's like don't, I'm not going there. Um, so the withdrawing of that. Uh, and that's considered fairly primary requirement in our life in the multifaceted sense fields. We're so open and vulnerable to media saturation and, and we can now inherit the whole 
planets stuff, you know, and also all kinds of entertainments and distractions. They don't don't give attention, and that can refine to. If we're in doubt, giving more attention to qualities that give rise to doubt is not going to help it. So, and that often the case is when we are in a doubt, should I do that, should I do this, should I do that, should I do this, should I do that, and getting more and more enmeshed in it. And uh, then you need to withdraw your attention to where do I have confidence. And from that position, look again, review again. So that's that's a withdrawal. So there's different, you know, different tones within that. It's downright, you know, kind of carving out your territory, if you like, or cycle or boundary drawing. There's subtler form, which is actually withdrawing attention, because it, as the saying is, whatever you attend to becomes the topic of your mind. <laughs> Whatever you attend to, <laughs> and how much of it is useful. This sets up the principle of renunciation, like it's unclutter, uh, don't take on useless stuff, it's not going to go where you need to go. And it's not even a categorical thing, at this particular time, in this particular mind state, I don't need more of this. <laughs> yeah. Another time maybe, but now no. You know, so that that requires deep attention, also mindfulness and, and discernment. Uh, and then the subtlest level is, is the relinquishment that can occur in the depth of meditation, relinquishment of volition, essentially. That's what I reflect back for you. Thank you. Could you say more about the relationship between the composed part? and the part that's in disarray as more important than either of the two. Yeah, it's a relationship that is, is the healer on any level. And so what one can do is set up the right kind of relational field, which is essentially one of uh, groundedness. Yeah. There's clarity and there's compassion. Yeah. So that sets up the proper mode, and then, okay, relating to the sore spot, which is your sense of stability and clarity, that is the sore spot, that's the bit that hurts, that bit not her, (laughs) or the past, this bit here, that's specific clarity, and then the sense of empathy or compassion, spaciousness, there's no pressure to make it change instead there's a relation so the the quality of of empathy has got a particular it's not just an idea, it's got a particular energy to it which keeps resonating in order to to normalize see what I mean, like this is this, this is that and empathy keeps resonating until they become like this and then the conflict ceases you see what I mean? Do you have anything to add to that, Laura? Perhaps a bit like I described with the jealousy. It, it, it was just for having that wish to understand it in a way that I hadn't met it before. 
You know, I'd had my judgments, my reactions, my trying to fix it, and they hadn't worked. And I realised I didn't know what was needed, but I'll just come come in and see, see if I can find out. And I couldn't really control. I didn't make it happen, but just by being available in a way. There was some, um, you know, process of discovery. So it is about relating, and it's also I, I like this word, this, this sense of discovery as well. It's sort of like a, almost like a willingness to learn or trust that I can learn. Yeah. Could we hear more about jealousy, please, and the associated difficult shame reactions? I, I sense what you're pointing to in the question is how uh, it's hugely challenging to trust into the moment, to open to these feelings because of the the fear of rejection, fear of being cast out, you know, there's... Uh, projecting other people's judgments that other people judge us as we're judging ourselves and of course there's some reality to this we we do make certain uh, experiences that arise in all of us uh, that they're taboo and they, they shouldn't belong but I think one of the things we learn in practice is that we give experiences energy by rejecting them as much as grasping them I think it's a sort of just the, the care that some of these feelings need. You know, shame is a very it's, it's it's one of the hardest feelings to be with and allow. And if it's here, not not get caught in the understandable reactions to it. So I, I, I think a lot of it is discovering what supports me. Like, for instance, with some of these feelings, where to find a place that has a perception of safety and more ease, like an armchair. I'm a, you know, it's one of those chairs in the library, <laughs> in our room where we can close the door, to create a perception of safety. So it's kind of, in terms of the faculty, sensing what supports the trust. That I can be where I am, or what's arising can, can simply be acknowledged and met, and, and not made wrong, not uh, defended against. You know, for me, with this feeling of jealousy and with feelings of shame, that's quite. There's quite a long process of discovery. Listening to teachers, sensing inwardly what actually works, actually brings some ground. It's sort of seeing how we get hooked in to the beliefs about the experience. So that example of jealousy, I had to 
you know, that recognition of fear, what others will think of me. And then that sense, it's possible to bear that fear in this moment. So a bit of the courage of virya, of of energy. So it's not, uh, it's more, those answers, they sort of come in the moment by listening and sensing and meeting yeah. And sometimes we just need others to see us. And we need to know we're we're okay by the resonance we get from others as well. That's why Sangha is a refuge. Mm. Yeah. Well I just yeah. think um if you have the practice embodiment body doesn't really judge anything and has no particular projections of others so if you can feel the energies you know where they're aggressive um, well you know I mean whatever they will kind of boil down to some pretty powerful stuff and you can experience them as felt experiences rather than thought experiences. When you talk about feeling, I imagine you mean emotions. An emotion has always got a particular surge to it of some kind. So you get that surging sense and it's like you get what they call the felt impression. Like it's dark or it's shifting or it's shimmering or it's shaking or it's raging to get out or whatever it's doing. How is that in the body? So, I mean, it doesn't really give you much understand. Well, it gives you a release because you, if you go into the, the fullness of the body as it's standing, sitting, walking, and these experiences can be quite choking, but the body doesn't abandon you. It doesn't abandon. So you don't, it doesn't throw you out. So in a way, it's a sort of safe place to un, unload these energies. Yeah, sometimes we we can leave our body. So it's also how to feel what supports coming into the body as well. Some of these things are very painful. So yeah, but that's what I exactly what I do is I come to the felt sense, the feeling sense, and sometimes even let go of the word shame or jealousy, but just. Jesse, how can I, what, how to meet the feeling? Just see what happens. So sometimes I use this, I, I came up with this image, sometimes images come, uh, sort of metaphors. And this image was of my, myself sitting in a room on a chair with this particular feeling I was struggling to open to and I imagined another myself coming into the room and sitting beside me how would that be? so it's just sort of inviting a freshness and openness and newness to the meeting because we have such familiar ways of coming into connection with ourselves. 
it's basically an openness yeah. and a coming alongside. Yeah. Ajahn, would you like to do one of your written? This one, long one. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the gist of it, bringing the body into alignment would seem like a merely structural or skeletal possibility subtle or fine material bodily energies seem to have a homing instinct to align with something though I could not say what truth, beauty life when this happens there is greater ease does any volition disrupt this quality of alignment or can the well instructed person conceive, plan, intend, etc., maybe even act, without resultant misalignment. Is this straying from centre one way to conceptualise karma, misalignment of bodily energies? Right, well... The Buddha talked about Sama, Ditti, Sama, Sankapa, Sama, Vajra, Sama, the whole thing is Sama, and that's often translated as right, which naturally people give a bit of pushback to, <laughs> but you might rephrase it as aligned, <laughs> that which is in alignment. <laughs> Uh, alignment with truth and um, this is what Dharma means it means the cosmic order where things are held in balance the Tao could say in, in Chinese terms uh, so things are in alignment and the aim of the practitioner is to maintain that alignment in the kind of you know Vedic cosmology that's the human virtue is to be the alignment that maintains the cosmic order that's the sage yeah so the alignment is uh, is is uh, the factor of the path or the underlying principle of the path but as you can see it doesn't negate action it means action is in alignment uh, in other words the nature of the non-alignment is, is a big hunk of self which is throwing things out of, out of balance. And so, very simply speaking, you know, alignment is others' self, same. So there's the balance. You know. Now, meditation, when we're kind of cultivating, so you see you know, that very principle of samaditi and right morality and so forth, when you come into meditation, the alignment can be so, so powerful like very deep chitta alignment you know. so we can say there's alignment in terms of how I act and think is actually in accord in balance we come into samadhi that cultivation and then we're kind of you know, clearing the field of actions and thoughts in order to really really deepen and strengthen the chitta's alignment in its knowingness and so instead of it leaning on a push or a pull or resisting something it's actually finding its true 
poise and balance where it doesn't keep having to create things or surge in some way in order to hold itself together and the experience is extremely buoyant because it's, it's holding itself there isn't somebody holding it up you know, I'm not having to get it going it's just buoyant and then all that self-pressures and tweaking can fall away it's not necessary so in that way the volition ceases yeah but actually one one notices that in the experience of that fruitions uh, of this purity of chitta there's a suffusion so that if you like there's a kind of definitely some sort of movement but it's not a movement to make or do it's a movement almost a gentle expansion of being so it's called suffusing the energy which has normally been associated with adjusting not necessary it's that energy always celebrates itself <laughs> and there's that, that suffusion so in the you see that metta for example uh, so the heart suffused jhana the qualities of jhana the entire body is suffused with rapture and ease so it's just that the energy does permeate in that way and so that, that actually gives rise to a very full and rich uh, fortified chitta but as we can recognize which is some basic reflection naturally the Buddha certainly intended things um, you know I'm going to go here uh, I'm going to you know, visit the Brahmins of Saketa or somewhere so he definitely intended and yet you know, that's coming from sort of what is helpful, what is skillful, what's in order what's in order, what's the appropriate aligned response to a situation of discord and um, openness to teaching is to move so moving in alignment or to bring alignment into a world of discord so the volition is coming from a an awareness that's spreading see, so as we recognize you know if you're aware of the story you know when this spirit of compassion was called the sahampati which means that the surveyor of all like hey there's a lot of mess around here so that that arises or descends if you like into the buddha and the buddha oh yes there are those people on fire with pain and passion there are those with a little dust in their eyes so aha uh-huh. therefore action arises out of that out of that awareness so the awareness is expanded so there's some sort of shift an opening of awareness into the more expanded reference and then okay where's the line now in this context in this context I'm touching into where's the, where's the midline of action because to ignore it would be actually a, a kind of a closure yeah. so to, to almost to maintain the potentials of awareness this action comes forth uh, and it's really it's a kind of you know one of those strange things that's that's saying the Buddha acts but doesn't create any karma 
Yeah, action. Karma means action. <laughs> so how can he act with not creating any karma? Because it's action that doesn't actually expect a result. It's like, I just act. It just comes forth. And what happens, I'm not invested in that. Yeah. So that sequence of course, you know, inheriting, there's no inheritance. That's the way it's expressed. Any thoughts on that? That's enough, huh? You know, when you kind of look at some of the images in the cosmology, you know, the wheel, yeah, and all the, the heavens and the earth and the devils and the demons and the hungry ghosts and the jealous gods, you know, and the, the cosmology, and you realize, well, if you translate those into psychology, <laughs> you get, yeah, there's the unacceptable emotions, there's the whining thoughts, <laughs> there's the feverish passions, there's the elated celestial energies, you know, it's all there. And right in the middle of that, you know, spanning it all, spanning it all, you know. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, as you recognize, as you cultivate, you know, what first was just dealing with this nagging thought, or then it gradually widens. Yeah, it's also my responses in relationships, then it's also, you know, it just keeps expanding what, what we're sensitive to, because you get more sensitive, right? Things you could have shrugged off 15 years ago, yeah, you know, you swat a fly and you go, oh God, I swatted a fly. <laughs> and it's sort of like, all right. <laughs> so, the, you know, the sensitivity increases. <laughs> so, you're just really much more in alignment with the created world, you know, care of nature, all of it comes into it eventually. That's why it doesn't stop. It's called the unstoppable. It doesn't stop. It just keeps expanding. Even as, as you know, new issues and new problems arise, okay, awareness has to expand to encompass it. And yet, it's always staying in the middle. That empty center, no self, no pressure, no obligation, no weight. Empty action. Do you know what that is? Hmm. Let's contemplate. Uh, yeah. The sense of that which becomes self, the you know, um, true acts don't need an actor. An action happens. Uh, doesn't have to be that heaviness or that got to make it work. You know. And then the potency of the action is purer because there's no got to make it work. You have to believe me. It's got to find out otherwise we won't or it's got to be this way or that, that intensity can be freed up action is just 
empty action, pure, open. So perhaps we shall uh, pause.